City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars. I'm Sandra Gilman, Chairman of the Board of the Wing, and this is Doug Leeds, our President. We've been presenting these very special programs for 25 years with our partners CUNY TV, and we've expanded them this year thanks to support from the Annenberg Foundation. These seminars are central to the Wing's efforts to provide educational programs for people interested in theatre. We are now also broadcasting a new weekly radio show called Downstage Center with XM Satellite Radio. On these shows, we bring conversations with theater artists, both on stage and behind the scenes, to listeners across America. To further support our educational efforts, the American Theater Wing each year provides grants and scholarships to New York theater and theater students. All of our educational and media programs, including these seminars, are available free on demand from our website www.americantheaterwing.org. The Wing founded the Tony Awards 60 years ago, and we're continuing to present them with the League of American Theaters and Producers. Today, we have the leaders of three of the largest nonprofit theaters in New York. They all share a philosophy of bringing their main stage productions directly to Broadway. We're very pleased to introduce our moderator today, Executive Director of the Theater Communications Group, Ben Cameron. We thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, today's session is about the not-for-profit theater in New York and how changing times and conditions are forcing us to rethink both our structures and our assumptions in not as nonprofit entities. Today we have with us three of the preeminent institutions from New York, institutions that conceivably will need no introduction to the larger audience. Lincoln Center Theater is celebrating their 20th anniversary production, uh, 20th anniversary season, sorry, producing in the Vivian Beaumont and Mitzi Newhouse theaters at Lincoln Center. Manhattan Theater Club, which began its life as an off-Broadway company on the Upper East Side, has moved to City Center at first in 1984 and has just recently reopened the Biltmore Theater on Broadway in 2003. And the Roundabout Theater has had a variety of homes over the past two decades. They began producing on Broadway with their move to the Criterion in 1991, and they reopened the former Selwyn Theater in the year 2000. While these institutions presumably need a little introduction, I'm delighted to be joined by seven individuals who may not be known quite so easily to you, individuals that all of us in the not-for-profit sector would say are inspirations, are great colleagues, and are great leaders in our field. Beginning with my far right, Julia Levy, is the Executive Director of External Affairs at the Roundabout Theater, an organization she joined first in 1990 as the Director of Development. Barry Grove has been the Executive Director of the Manhattan Theater Club since 1974 and a leading figure in the not-for-profit national community ever since long before we met on an NEA panel years ago. Barry and Julia, you're both welcome. Ellen Richards is the Managing Director of the Roundabout Theatre Company, a role she began at the Roundabout in 1983. 
been that long. <laughs> Andre Bishop has been the artistic director of Lincoln Center Theater since 1992, a position he assumed after leading 10 years Playwrights Horizons and six years there as their literary manager. To my immediate left, Lynn Meadow is the artistic director of the Manhattan Theater Club, a role she assumed in 1972. Bernard Gersten has been the executive producer of Lincoln Center Theater since its reestablishment in 1985. He previously was the associate producer of the New York Shakespeare Festival. And finally, Todd Hames is the artistic director of the Roundabout Theater Company, a role he has held since 1990. From 1983 to 1990, he served as the theater's executive director. I'd like to start actually by setting some vocabulary or some limits out for our discussion. So often when we talk about the not-for-profit theater, that is heard as people saying, oh, you lose money. You must be in the non-profit business of draining resources rather than accumulating them. We, of course, know it means something different. Who could outline for us a little bit what are the unique or salient qualities of a not-for-profit theater that distinguish it from its for-profit counterpart? Barry? Well, the difference is fundamentally that we're not incorporated to make a profit. Um, the organization's budgets are organized in a very different way. We, we rely certainly on ticket sales, whether those are memberships or subscriptions and single tickets, to make up a percentage of the budget, but then the balance of the budget is made up by contributions from the public, private individuals, corporations, foundations, government. Uh, support as well, and overseen by a board of directors or a board of trustees that work together with the senior management leadership that's represented on the panels today. And structurally, there may be a difference as well in the leadership of the organization in a division of an artistic director and a managing director and executive director. Uh, Andre and Lynn, could you talk a little bit about what it means to be an artistic director of a, of a not-for-profit theater and what your role is? Lynn? <laughs> I was going to defer to you. Um, it means a lot of things, really, uh, to be an artistic director. Um, I mean, more specifically, Ben, what, you mean what is our job? What's your job? Yeah. Well, uh, my job at the Manhattan Theater Club, and I think each artistic director's job is somewhat different. Obviously, there are great similarities, but um, I'm responsible for uh, choosing the material that is presented on our stages and overseeing the quality of that. Uh, work, um, overseeing the selection of um, directors and other artistic personnel. If it's a show that I'm not directing myself, and I'm basically responsible for the artistic policy of the theater. Same. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I just never know what my artistic policy is, so... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, it's the same. I mean, I think just but to say... But don't you think we're always looking for it and talking about it or thinking oh, about it? I guess so. I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't really know. I, I don't know the answer to that. But I do know. I mean, actually, I think what's quite interesting here is that there are real partnerships on the panel. And, you know, in the old days, uh, you sort of thought one single person led a theater or... or in the old, old, old Broadway days, you sort of thought one single person was the producer, and obviously that's quite different. I think what I have learned, both when I was at Playwrights Horizons and now with Bernie at Lincoln Center Theater, is it, these jobs that we all have cannot be done by one person alone. And uh, there are divisions of duties, artistic and management and, and, and all. And more importantly, and frankly more interestingly, 
real areas of joint everything. And I know from the many years I, I, I've been working that even though it's nice to think you're the artistic director and therefore you do this and you are that and all of that, none of that is true. And I think that I've had two wonderfully successful and loving partnerships with Paul Daniels at Playwrights Horizons and with Bernie here at Lincoln Center Theatre. And I absolutely believe in that two-pronged model. And I'd be curious if anyone else in this panel does, I mean, beyond just saying, of course. Uh, <coughs> I don't think it's possible to function in the theater in New York City and probably anywhere in this country without that. I certainly agree with you, Andre, completely. I mean, Barry, who was actually, you know, the executive producer at the Manhattan Theater Club, and um, there's no way that the, the organization could flourish or function without this kind of sharing of responsibilities and it's just too gigantic and I'm sure you know Todd who's here with two two other people I'm sure must feel the same well and, and part of what interests me Todd uh, you're a stage director by background Andre you're a, a dramaturg and a play developer more than an active director per se and Todd you bring a, even a third perspective to the role of artistic director and being really grounded in management in a different way how does that affect your perspective in leading your theater, do you think? Um, hard to say. I mean, I think, you know, obviously, as, as everybody has said, you know, these institutions evolve in a way around the people running them um, and the strengths and weaknesses and skills of the people running them. Um, you know, at Roundabout, uh, I was kind of unusual in the sense that at the time when I became artistic director uh, in the early 90s, it wasn't common for artistic directors to come from the management area. Um, so that was kind of a different model, I suppose. Um, and I can never, um, and I suppose it's an advantage and a disadvantage. On the one hand, um, institutionally, I can't ever sort of let go of my management background. So there's a part of me that can never completely go, uh, hey, let's just do this and we'll be wild artists and screw the money and, you know, damn the torpedoes. And, I, you know, I come from a theater that had been in terrible financial problems, so I can never completely live that down. So maybe in a certain way that has a negative, and I guess the positive is the same thing, that, you know, the board of directors knows that I do come from a management background, so, I, you know, there's a certain degree of, of, um, of management uh, information that I bring to every decision I make, even when it's artistic. And my two partners, you know, have really evolved from that. Ellen, who, uh, who's been with me, virtually since the beginning, who handles all the day-to-day -day management affairs of the organization now, and Julia, who deals with the board of directors and with fundraising and with external affairs, neither of which, frankly, and I'm not, I, I'm not being uh, self-deprecating, I, I don't think I'm as good as they are at it, and so it, it really inures to the benefit of the theater and, frankly, to my own self-benefit self to have people who are better at what they do uh, than I would be. Uh, you know, I often think about uh, what because I think you always worry about the things that you don't do well. And I often wish, because uh, I know everybody on this panel very well, and I'm not saying that the not-for-profit theater is all one big, happy, joyous community, but there, I think this group probably is, without being overly corny. Um, and, you know, there are times where I think I would love to be a director like Lynn, so I could, as artistic director, I could communicate with the directors of the shows in a way that I don't feel I can, because I'm not a director. So I have a vocabulary that is more limited, and I do the best I can. And there are times when I feel like, uh, uh, particularly in the last eight or nine years as we've gotten more into new play development, 
that I have the background that Andre has in terms of really developing an incredible generation of young playwrights, so from Wendy Wasserstein on, uh, and being able to have that vocabulary, which I don't have. Um, so I do the best I can, and hopefully I bring other strengths. But those are the things I think about, because I think, I think you always sort of worry about what you're not doing. You know, the things that you do do, sort of, you just do, you know? Regardless of the sort of diversity and the, the styles and strengths you have as artistic leaders, one of the things the three organizations have in common is that you do exist now with plants or facilities that let you allow, or that allow you to operate in the for-profit terrain as well as in the not-for-profit. When the not-for-profit was originally founded, there was a pretty bright light of demarcation, and indeed some people would say the not-for-profit was founded as a reaction against the for-profit. Some of the early conversations were quite fractious, as legend would have it, but there was a turning point years ago, and many people would say that one of the big changes happened because of you, Mr. Gersten, with uh, the, the story of Chorus Line and how that really began to alter. Began before that. Well, it did begin before, but that's a big turning moment. Can, can you talk about oh, where no, you see the, the turning, turning moment? moment? What you describe as the turning moment, actually, is the first time that a not-for-profit theater did a play on Broadway. Uh, but the first time was in 1971, when Two Gentlemen of Verona was taken from the Delacorte Theater in Central Park, a free mm. not-for-profit theater, and went to the St. James Theater, a Broadway theater, and went there totally under the auspices of the not-for-profit theater and for its own benefit. Mm. But, but that may have been signaled as a turning point, but I didn't consider it to be, nor do I consider any subsequent events to be turning points. They have been evolution of a kind of reality. I, I want to go back to your initial Please. question, which is all the not-for-profits do is lose money, and uh, there seems to be something derogatory about that idea. Of course, I've never held we don't lose money, we spend money. I mean, the biggest loser of money is the government. You know how much money the government loses? Uh, so we don't lose it, we spend it. And the idea that the not-for-profit theater loses money, it always goes in quotes, and the for-profit theater just makes money is unreal. Actually, the, the for-profit theater loses about 80% of its money. In that, it fails to return uh, all but 20% of the capital that is invested on an annual basis in for-profit activity. But it seems to me they're profligate. They're always surprised when they lose money. <laughs> we are such careful planners <laughs> that we know that we will spend more than we earn, and we raise that in advance. So it seems to me we deal with the problems, the market problems of the theater, much more reasonably, much more realistically. Well, and yet for-profit producers have often contended that we work in an unfair competitive environment because we are able to raise money and we are able to they raise, they raise money. money too. Yeah. They I'm raise money. I'm it's just <laughs> no, no, no. But this <laughs> the argument. The, okay. the other difference, yeah, though, that, sure. that they distinguishes us more. <laughs> <laughs> they do. That distinguishes as nonprofits. All of us, whether we have a membership or we have a subscription theater, we're all giving, uh, charging below market rates to our subscribers, to our members, for our shows, which the for-profit theater does not do. And we're about, for the nonprofit designation, we have to provide some kind of service to the community. So it's not just about, I would say it might be enough just producing great theater, which is what we do, but it's also providing it at a reasonable price, which is what we struggle to do every day. And I'd like to draw a different us. distinction also, yeah. Ben, to what you said before. Broadway is not, by definition, perforce, commercial or non-commercial. It's a piece of geographic real estate. In the rest of the country, 
the major not-for-profit institutions operate in theaters with more than 500 seats. And they're called the Guthrie Main Stage or the Mark Taper Forum or the Goodman. In New York, when you operate in a theater with more than 500 seats, we also call them Broadway theaters. But that doesn't, by definition, make them either commercial or not-for-profit. Are there ways that you think, you've just finished renovating a building, uh, and as says the roundabout, are there ways, as if I were an audience member, and maybe there are not ways, how would I know when I walk into the auditorium or the experience I have that I might be in a not-for-profit context as opposed to a for-profit? Would I, would I be able to sense that in any kind of way? I think we worked very hard to answer that question, yes, um, in a number of ways. Obviously, um, we have a subscription audience that depends on coming back to the theater on a regular basis. And so a whole series of things were true about the decisions that went into the redesign. First and foremost, Lynn wanted a space that was really embracing to the artist. We were doing new work. So we reconfigured the way the audience and the stage proscenium interface. The stage is lower, the audience is raked in a kind of way that's really en encompasses them in the experience in a slightly different way. Beyond that, obviously we cared about comfort, the dimensions of the seats, places for people to gather before and after the show, those sorts of things. And I think at least equally importantly, we tried to create the history of the institution inside the building on its walls so that as you came to the theater, you had a context of an artist's body of work that they had seen perhaps with us, perhaps in some of these other theaters as well, before and after the experience they're undertaking, as opposed to it being one night in one space. But it's an interesting question. Does an audience member who's coming for the first time really know that they're in a nonprofit theater versus a profit theater? And I think that's, I mean, I would be interested to hear from my colleagues if people, if their audience does. I think in the, our first year, at the renovated Biltmore, there were a lot of people who didn't know and that they thought that they were coming to see a traditional Broadway show and they didn't understand that, say for example, our first play was written by a playwright who's many of whose plays we had produced. I think it was his seventh or eighth play that we had produced. So I, I don't, I wonder if the audience really knows the difference or whether when you walk into a theater on Broadway, if you, you know, if they make that distinction. Yeah. I when, you, when you did uh, An American Daughter, did the audience know that they were going to a, a theater that was... In my opinion, uh, the in-house audience, the audience that is your own audience, knows. Right. Because they're used to hearing from you and they understand it to a certain extent. But the ordinary, the, the ordinary theater goer is not interested really in who the producer is. Producers have very, very slight... Uh, uh, reputations in reality, except for a, a handful of flamboyant producers in the for-profit <laughs> sector. So that people may have known when they went to a, uh, uh, to a David Merrick show years ago, because Maybe. David Merrick was a uh, cut a swath. Uh, I don't know how many people knew or know that they're going to see a Cameron Mackintosh production, and they don't really care. I think they know us in our home institutions or they establish them over a period of time to the extent that we're perceived to be a Broadway theater or even at Lincoln Center, which is an amorphous mass that people don't sort out very carefully. Uh, I don't think they know. I agree with uh, you. The casual visitor does not know, right, doesn't sure. care particularly. But let me ask Ellen this. If they don't know, clearly, and if they presume for a minute that maybe they are in a Broadway context, clearly what we said earlier is you have to raise a lot of money, you and Julia and Todd, to, for example, just to balance your budget. If the perception is Phantom of the Opera's next door and they make such huge profits, why should we give charitably to an organization 
that we perceive to be working in that for-profit terrain. Is that an important distinction, and how do you combat that, or how do you convey that? Well, I think um, we get to know our subscribers, and um, they understand who we are. I mean, we market to them with our, for contributions. Um, we send out newsletters. We, in, in our program, it's pretty clear that we have contributions. Um, we have a kiosk in the lobby uh, for donations and help. Um, and I think once, some, once somebody's bought a ticket from us, we have them, and they're contacted, and we do get then the chance then to say who we are. I think that we've also spent, we've also, we've, I mean, Ellen, Joy, and myself have spent a great deal of time thinking on the subject that you're talking about. And we constantly are trying to do anything we can to make, you know, theater going, commercial theater going in New York City has not traditionally been, traditionally, a consumer-friendly business. Um, and in the sense that, you know, if people wanted to see a hit show, they paid whatever they had to pay, and they were treated however they were treated, and they sat wherever they could sit. And that was it. And frankly, you know, look, let's be realistic about it. If you are, just to pick on Disney for a second, if you own that theater and your audience is coming to see The Lion King, they may go into the new Amsterdam theater once every 20 years mm -hmm. because The Lion King will run 20 years. So really, whether their physical experience and physical comfort and whether they like the ushers and were treated well, that's not your highest priority because they're not going to be there for another 20 years. For us, um, we want everybody to come into the theater and go, wow, not only is the, hopefully the show pretty good, but everything about the theater was a little bit more comfortable. The ushers actually were smiling and not grouchy, and the box office wasn't hostile, and they told us where our seats were, and all the things that we would like to do. And we spend a great deal of time trying to accomplish that. Um, I mean, I think just looking, for example, at the way the Biltmore is designed, which I think is stunning, I think they've done, I mean, just physically, it's a more commodious theater than a lot of Broadway theaters, where sort of the, you know, Broadway, because of the economics commercially, you know, it's become a little bit like economy and airlines, which is you have to cram as many seats as possible because the costs are so out of control. At Roundabout, I mean, just speaking of our theater, I mean, we took 200 seats out of the Selwyn Theater to make it more physically comfortable, even though economically it wasn't the best thing in the world because we wanted it to be a different kind of experience. And because as a not-for-profit theater, we viewed that as one of our roles, to make the entire theater-going experience comfortable. Having said that, you know, it is a constant battle when you have the single ticket buyers coming into your quote-unquote hit shows to, to let them know that this is something different than a commercial theater. But we're always trying to do that because that's how we expand our audience. And, and I think we're, you're all, we're also trying to convey who we are. What's important about trying to convey who we are to the audience is also about the perception of the work that they're seeing. When you're seeing a show on Broadway, obviously that what a producer has chosen to do a commercial show with a single purpose, to make money from that show. In the case of all of these theaters here, there often are many reasons that we're making a choice to do a show, to support an artist, to, to do work of an artist today that, uh, whom we think will do something interesting tomorrow. So to the extent that our audience is educated in that, it will make the theater-going experience better to the extent that they're more comfortable in their seats means that they'll come back to see the body of work. We're planning entire seasons and thinking through. We're not just doing one show at a time. Any one of us in our theaters is, is looking forward. So it's, import, it's important to us that the theater-goer try to understand that distinction, even if a theater-goer can't 
necessarily articulated, it's different when you go see The Lion King. The Lion King is there to make money. Our shows are not just there to make money. They're there for many other reasons. There's another um, thing, though, that, that's important to say about being part of the broader Broadway family, and that is that unlike our, all of our off-Broadway venues, by doing a piece of work in the Broadway theaters that we have, respectively, um, y you attract automatically, almost by definition, a larger audience. Because there still is an audience of casual theater goers, let's call them, or, or regular Broadway theater goers, who are finding their way to this work, perhaps for the first time. And that's exciting, because it's bringing in significant numbers of single-ticket buyers, who are in the end future subscribers, future donors, um, and, and future at least repeat customers. If, if, even if they don't ever become subscribers, there's no question that being in the Broadway listings as opposed to the off-Broadway listings attracts a wider viewership, if you will. Mm -hmm. Ben? Uh, yes, excuse me. Please. Uh, I, will, I think we haven't said it enough yet, because you can't say it too much, that the essential motivation of the not-for-profit theaters, we, our not-for-profit theaters, but not-for-profit theaters in general, is artistically driven, not economically driven, not, uh, you, you know, uh, the, uh, it's not that the Broadway theaters are, exist primarily to make money, but making money is their, is their engine. Uh, they entertain. I felt you, were, you didn't do justice to The Lion King. It entertains <laughs> and makes money. And it's a definition <laughs> of success. But Doesn't we hope money. also to entertain in a more complex, perhaps, way. Uh, and uh, and uh, to, to fulfill the possibilities of the theater on a broader range than simply to entertain. And if we fail to fulfill our artistic obligations and goals and aspirations, then we fail as a theater and we don't continue to exist. So the years that you racked up and you're describing how long all of us have been engaged in this activity is a testimony to the fact that to a certain extent we have fulfilled our goals and fulfilled our artistic mission because that provides Again, the engine that sustains us, which is money that's contributed, audiences that sustain us, and artists that support our efforts. I'm interested, Julia. No, I was going to add that, that speaking, speaking to that as well, the artistic mission is not just about what ends up on stage. It's about the support we as a community provide to the artists, whether it's through workshops, whether it's through um, you know, your director's program, for example. Whatever it is that we're doing so much more behind the scenes to encourage these writers to stay in the theater, whether it's we have a program where to, Todd decided years ago that we really needed to keep directors in the theater. And so we pay them a stipend with absolutely no obligation just to stay at Michael Mayer, if I may point to, point to someone specifically, was about to go to Hollywood. Mm. And he couldn't make a living as a director. And so we decided, Todd decided, that we needed to keep him here and how to do it, but to pay him something so he could stay. And look at what's happened to him now. So we're more than just about producing on stage. I'd say that's, that's sort of the um, end all of what we do. Um, and there are a lot of activities, education activities, other things that distinguish us for which we use those contributions that we receive. It's not n most of that money or some of that money doesn't go directly back to the stage. It's about creating communities within our theaters, between the artists, between the audiences, with kids. You actually raise a point about nurturing talent over, uh, over a long time, and I know all of you in different ways have nurtured playwrights. You, you've all alluded to it in different ways. Can you explain a little bit about how that works, what it means to nurture a playwright, and really what the conditions are to be a playwright in America today, so people can understand? Well, I think the conditions 
to be a playwright in America, and I know everyone wants somebody like me to say they're appalling, but in fact, I think they're excellent. I think we, because of the nonprofit theater, have been living in a golden age of American playwriting and not knowing we have for the past 15 years. I mean, when I began at Playwrights Horizons, when I came in as a volunteer, or lower than a volunteer, <laughs> is such a thing as a lower than a volunteer in a nonprofit theater, um, uh, we. Uh, we and Manhattan Theatre Club and a few other theatres, mostly in New York, very few outside of New York in the regional theatres, began doing new plays, but this was not something that was widely done. Um, and of course what's happened is that uh, it has nothing actually to do with Broadway not doing new work or use, I mean, Broadway used to do new work way before the mid-70s that I'm talking about. I mean, and we're going to have to go back to the 50s. And then it started petering out somewhat. But I think that now all over the country, and I mean all over the country, in all hundreds of large and small regional resident theaters, of which you know more about them than anyone as head of TCG, uh, are doing new plays. I mean, my theory, and it's very simplistic, is in the early days these theaters were establishing themselves in cities that had never had resident theaters. And, of course, they did the old favorites and classics and titles that people knew because they had to find an audience. This is terribly, terribly simplistic. Uh, eventually, I think the audience wanted more, and as the theaters in New York, and I'm wildly pro-New York, and uh, started having success with new plays, and I mean not just successful plays, but I mean success in what you just said, nurturing generations of playwrights. This began catching on around the country, and suddenly there were residencies and commissions all over the country, and now the regional resident theater movement do endless amounts of new plays, which 25 years ago was simply not true. And I think there are a lot of programs for writers and entirely too much development of them uh, and too many reading programs and too many workshop programs. All of that is as a result of well-intentioned artistic social work that was in fact necessary in the mid-1970s. But I think that playwrights have a glorious national theater in which to have their work done and often done very well. Uh, and that's a huge change from when all of us sitting up here started out. And I, 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 so I think, I think that playwrights have, a, have it okay. I mean, life in the theater is not okay, but once you get, you understand that, there is okayness within not okayness. <laughs> but uh, I, I think there's a hunger on the, you know, I, I know that both Andre and I for the last, it's really three decades, have been committed to developing new writers and uh, and certainly have created the careers of writer after writer not you know I was in a, a bookstore the other day and I saw I was looking on the shelf to see looking in the theater section and I saw these published books I thought my god <laughs> these are all of our playwrights who are being studied in classrooms a across America but and and I agree with Andre that there's been such a proliferation as a result of that work at Players Horizons and at Manhattan Theater Club of the 70s and the 80s that many theaters across the country created second theaters to do their uh, the new work in, but there seems to be amongst writers the feeling that you can be in a second stage, but you can't 
get the the big right. ring. The what is it called? The golden ring. Oh, the golden the, ring. The golden ring. I was going to say the big apple or the <laughs> <laughs> big potato. I was, and and so I think one of the reasons that you're seeing work that's being done in our theaters on Broadway is there is a hunger for these this generation and the generation generations of writers who've been created who would like to have their work seen in yet larger venues, and that seems to be some of the appetite on the part of the playwrights and certainly a paucity on the part of Broadway. There has not been, to have new plays done on Broadway has not been something that's uh, proliferated every season. So there's a need there, whether there's going to be an appetite is something to be seen. But I agree with Andre, there's overdevelopment on one level and on a higher level, I think we need to expose these writers' works. Todd, you look like you're nodding in agreement as well. Yeah, I, 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 have nothing, I have nothing intelligent to contribute. These two have had such a... <laughs> such a I, I'm looking at them because they really have developed a generation of playwrights long before I was working with new playwrights. So. I mean, I think ultimately, you know, all this development crap, and I used to believe in it totally, and I, I do, but when I started really believing it, I was very young, and I thought somehow there was a process that was holier than thou, <laughs> holier than moi, holier than something. And I, I began to realize that all of these workshops and readings and all of that are good. I mean, they are bright lights shining in a bad old world. But really the way a writer develops, and it's so obvious, all of you know this, is through having their play produced and produced as well as possible. That's real play development. Play exactly. development and play production to a great extent is one and the same. I, I didn't know that in 1975 when I walked into the doors of Playwrights Horizons and I don't know, I mean, all of this was so new. And yet you produced them? That's but, what you but did? By, I, I didn't, by default, I mean, right. I, I, I'm not, uh, you produced them because you sort of did it and nothing cost very much then. Right, we had all those, you know, we had these cheap theaters and it didn't cost a lot, although I guess we were still going out of our minds trying to raise money the, to the pay. It seemed the like a lot at the time. Cents, it always seemed like I mean, a lot. The, the, the artistic policy of Playwrights Horizons in 1975, and I, I, I don't think it's quite that now, I hope it isn't, that was sort of fan every talented flame. And we could do that. And out of those talented flames grew, this is awful, bonfires <laughs> <laughs> from some oh, people. You know, we should name names, though. Look, some at, people. look, at, look at who emerged. Just name oh, I mean, names. just briefly, Wendy being someone probably everyone knows and has had a very prominent career in, uh, commercially, which is part of this discussion, as well as in the nonprofit theater. I mean, she, uh, my predecessor at Playwrights, Robert Moss, uh, the, the Playwrights Horizons used to be in some ghastly hole in the old Y in the West 50s right. as part of a, a, a dance, I can, Louise Roberts, who ran a kind of dance program at the Y. And Wendy's eccentric mother, whom one never ceases to hear about and be horrified and amazed at the same time by, <laughs> uh, said to Bob Moss, because she was a studying dance, uh, you know, my daughter Clark was Center. at the Clark Center. <laughs> she was studying dance and she came one day with this play by her talented daughter and gave it to Bob Moss on her way to the dance class and the, the play was called Any Woman Can't, which was <laughs> odd, um, considering her accomplishments, Wendy's accomplishments. Uh, and that's how that started. Bob read it and thought, oh, this is great, let's do it. 
And then it wasn't a very good play. In fact, it was bad. But <laughs> because of that, and you know all this, we did the next play with the even worse title of Montpelier Pizzazz. Um, and after we got through that, Wendy started cooking. And of course, wrote Uncommon Women and Others, which was her first notable play, and Isn't It Romantic, and, and so on. A whole other seminar and topic, which would be interesting for some of us to talk about, is what happens to all of these writers, directors, and producers, such as those <laughs> of us here, when they begin to hit middle age. That's a really interesting study, <laughs> uh, and one for another time. And I'm actually less concerned about the younger generation of playwrights as I am about the middle-aged generation of playwrights, my generation. Uh, it's a very, I mean, most of us know, you know, hitting your mid-50s is daunting. And artists really feel that, writers more than directors and designers. It's a peculiar thing, and it's always been true in the American theater, if you go back and read the history of the theater. But Something. the reality, I mean, I think the reality is um, that uh, as modest as you're being about it, if you and Lynn and Bernie, who was then at, at the public, I guess, had not been there and, those, and a few other not-for-profit theaters at that moment in time, for whatever, <laughs> what you can call a development or producing, but if you hadn't been there to give those people the opportunity because something about their work struck you, the reality is nobody else would have done it. It's not like the commercial theater would have done it, and those people all would have gone different ways, some of them to Hollywood and some of them to God knows what, not in the business, and a generation of playwrights would never have existed. And that's just a fact. However, however it happened, and whatever you were thinking at that moment, the reality is that, that an entire generation of playwrights now in their 40s, 50s, and 60s came about because five or six not-for-profit theaters did their work at that time. I was thinking... Um, that it was a time to announce, it was a subscription deadline, yet another deadline, and we had to fill it, we had to <laughs> announce it, we had to get out a brochure, so what were we going to do? <laughs> and that's... But that's as good a motivation as any. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only half kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in, in, in that, that's a Desperate very... to find talent. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a very concrete case. I mean, when you make the leap into the for-profit arena, A, you've alluded to, to some things like, is there an appetite for new work in the Broadway arena? Is there? Are audiences open we, to it or we they will, resistant? We'll, what do you we'll see. I mean, we'll, we're, we're trying to do more. All of us are trying to do more and trying to create uh, an appetite for new work and for uh, other kinds of uh, work that's less conventional, that the commercial theater wouldn't do. The work with the roundabout, which, you know, and the work of Lincoln Center on Broadway, it's not worth it you'd see in the commercial arena and at Manhattan Theater Club. And, and we'll see, I think, given all of our determinations, I think we'll find a way to make it all work. But you've made a lot of questions now. I'm just curious, you've made the move most recently. What has surprised you most about how the move into the Biltmore has affected your organization? And your own work. Yeah, it's been da daunting. It's uh, a lot. We have three theaters now, and it's been really uh, the the workload has been extraordinary. Um, I guess it, I don't know. It relates to maybe having a third child or something. Like you have enough hands to handle too. But so the workload has been uh, gigantic, and there's a, just been a real learning curve to try to understand. Um, to try to marry the needs, the artistic needs of the organization and 
the needs of the audience that wants to, that does or doesn't want to come. So we're so much in a learning curve now that all I can do is babble and um, uh, talk to me in another year and I'll tell you. But I think the answer is also yes, simply to your question. Audiences do want to come and see new work as they have off-Broadway, as they have commercially and, and from nonprofit theaters on Broadway in the past. The challenge is simply stabilizing a sort of an economic model uh, at a much higher uh, cost threshold than, than ever before. And, and that's a challenge. That's a challenge both in terms of the ticket side of it and the fundraising side of it. But fundamentally, I think these writers and their work speak to an audience and you can see that from the backs of the theaters in, in all of these venues. And for that matter, in, in the commercial houses when, when um, when a, a new play has enough time to sort of take root. You know, we were blessed not too long ago by, by Proof and Allergist's wife having two-year runs in a commercial setting. There, they weren't purely nonprofit. They'd been developed entirely by us in a nonprofit way, but we were joined by commercial colleagues, distinguished group of them, um, to bring those forward into a more open-ended way, right in the middle of 9-11 and all that that entailed in terms of changing patterns of audience. And yet they were celebrated because we were able to find a way to sort of economically have them stay around long enough mm -hmm. to get known. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the challenge of what we're all doing because the fundamental run is 10 or 12 or 13, 15 weeks, um, as opposed to from the jump deciding that this is going to run for a year or two years. So you have a very short amount of time to essentially get the word out about this artistic experience. But when you do, it's rewarded by the audience's participation, I think. On some fundamental level, don't you think that just the existence of our theaters is a magnet for the artists and for the writers? I mean, I've had writers say to me now, oh, I want to write a new play for the Biltmore, or you know, a director who says, I want to work at the American Airlines Theater, I want to work at the Beaumont, that just the very existence of these institutional theaters is provides a beacon and a place that artists aspire to work in. And uh, there, there's something simply about existing, if you know what I mean, that, that generates the work itself. Well, I, I think the thing with doing plays on, at, at any of our theaters, uh, particularly, is that we have a built-in audience. You know, we're not going to open, and if we get a bad review, the audience is going to disappear. It's a very supportive atmosphere for, for playwrights, directors, and actors, you know. But I, w but I wonder, is, is the possibility that you have now uh, Broadway facilities, which brings with it the golden ring phrase in a certain way that you used, of Tony recognition potentially, Tony nominations, visibility, longer runs, et cetera. How is that affecting your relationship with artists, especially as you make programming choices about which shows will go into the Broadway space versus which shows will not? Is that, is that an issue for you in your relationship with the artists? Does that change the talent pool of people that will work with you? I think there's, there's definitely some people who've worked at the Roundabout who want to work in the Broadway venue. They want to be eligible for the Tony. You, you just seem to get much more attention if your show is done on Broadway. Um, I I'm sure Todd would agree with that. Yeah, and I think it, I feel, um, honestly, I feel that everybody, that the pressure is greater on 
that that there's a, that when you're working off Broadway, um, there's a greater sense of um, of uh, doing this for purely for the artistic experience, and um, that the artists on Broadway, in spite of themselves, can't help but get caught up in the unbelievable high profile and the Tony Awards, all of which, in a certain way, they may want. But my experience has been that it, it creates a lot of pressure and an environment backstage that sometimes is not quite as much, uh, can be not quite as much fun <laughs> when it's off Broadway. I don't mean to be negative. I think it's just, it's the truth. And, it's, and sometimes, frankly, you know, again, getting into the nitty gritty, I mean, we, we, we are part of an institution and we are part of a body of, let's say, seven or eight plays that we do a year. Um, so we're not doing one play every three years like a commercial producer is. And um, I, there have certainly been times when I felt that, you know, the actors felt that we should have spent more money on advertising so that there were bigger ads. And even if it didn't sell more tickets, they just wanted to see it and maybe it would help their Tony chances. And, you know, all these kind of pressures that, that, that um, come with uh, sort of the commercial theater and the not-for-profit theater being side by side. And I agree completely with what, what Bernie said at the beginning. You know, I mean, for me, there is a very definite distinction that every decision that we make, I, I really, we as a group, I really believe we make with sort of the artistic product first and the financial considerations second. Sometimes a very, very strong second, don't get me wrong, I'm not being naive. Um, and in the commercial theater, by definition, it's the, it's the financial pressure first and the artistic decision second. And by that's their, in a way, that's their responsibility to their investors. Um, so there is a very different distinction. But for the artists working backstage who have careers and who have lives and, and, and want to get movies and want to win Tony Awards and want to do all those things, they want, they want the same prominence as, you know, some commercial production that somebody's spending $15 million a year on, when in fact, you know, $15 million may pay for five of our productions. So it's, I find that since moving to Broadway, although we get, you know, the artists like it a lot, and we've done some great work. I find there are some downsides of it. There's no question for us. But Ben, it seems to me the question might be, are there plays that are available to us for the large theaters, for the Broadway scale theaters that are not available to us for the smaller theaters? Or are there artists who will only work for us in the big Absolutely. theaters? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I believe the answer is no. You don't think so? No, no I, I don't I, think oh, so. I believe I, the answer is there a play that we wanted to produce in one theater that our, well, there is, as a matter of fact. Yes, definitely. <laughs> 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 we're going to name names. Yeah, yeah, we were persuaded, if it's called. Well, but, but more it, often. And it's a play that often. I would have liked to do off-Broadway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let me give you a specific <laughs> example. I probably, shouldn't, I probably shouldn't be this specific, Perhaps. but I will, but it's on my mind. You know, we, we, did a, we did a production of Assassins last year, which, uh, I really was proud of, and it was very well received and got great reviews. Unfortunately, in spite of the fact that I was proud of it and it got good reviews, you know, ticket sales were never fantastic. The, I think the audience that came liked it a lot and let, was never fantastic. I think in a commercial setting, honestly, uh, that show would have run longer because the commercial producers uh, probably would have, thought, well, we've, we've been working on this for three years and we put so much money into it, let's pour in another few hundred thousand dollars and we'll probably lose it, but we can run another four or five months and give it the old college try. And, and they probably would have run it another three or four or five months and it, I can guarantee you it would not have made any money, but it would have, would have run another few months and probably lost some money and whatever. We're a not-for-profit theater. We, don't have, we have a fiduciary responsibility to our investors, to our board members. When a show looks like it's going to lose money, 
that's it. it. It has to end because we have a responsibility to hundreds of other people, including a lot of staff members who I stare at every day who have to earn a living. So we, when, when it became clear to us that that show had no advance um, and that it was not going to do a lot of commercial business, we closed the show. I think a lot of the artists involved with the show, and understandably, even though I obviously don't agree, a lot of the artists were pissed off. They, thought they, they should have thought, well, just keep it going. It got good reviews. Why can't you make a hit out of it and whatever? And I understand both sides of it. That's a kind of decision that Roundabout never would have had to face 10 years ago when we were small. But I, but I think the artists would have understood in a commercial situation. They would have understood that you had a fiduciary responsibility to the investors and you had to close it. I think that where the complication comes in is that we're in an, a nonprofit sector and on many of the shows we lose money, so the perception is, well, you could run it longer. Maybe, I think yeah. it's the opposite. That I also do think, I, and I hadn't thought of this until now, but I do think that since having Cabaret, which we did produce, which the vast majority of people who saw it did not know it was produced by a nonprofit theater company. Um, that, I think, has changed the expectation also, I wonder, of the artists, that, well, you kept Cabaret running for six years, can't we do the same thing with Assassins or some of the other shows? And there are times where in Assassins, perhaps we could have kept longer running a few more weeks, but the reality is for most of us, too, um, particularly for MTC and, and for Roundabout, not so much for Lincoln Center, because we do have subscription theaters, so we have to open a, open a show on a date and close it on another date. That helps us attract some of the artists, too, because we're not asking, as Hugh Jackman had to make a year commitment on Broadway. We're asking actors to make a 16-week commitment or a 20-week commitment with rehearsal. So I think that helps them make a decision because they know there's going to be a beginning and end. So I think two of those issues have, on either end, cabaret, I think for us in particular, they might think, we I just did that. Um, we could do that. Uh, we could keep it yeah, running. Yeah, I mean, I, think, I just feel, I, I honestly feel, and I have no regrets about moving to Broadway, and I think it's given us great opportunities, but I do feel that it has it's sort of up the ante, and as Barry was saying earlier, there's no question that, again, uh, Lincoln Center has always been on Broadway since this incarnation, but we're, we haven't, and MTC has, and certainly speaking for Roundabout, our fixed costs are much greater than they used to be right. when we were off Broadway, and when your fixed costs are much greater, you just, you can't help but feel this enormous pressure to, to, to deliver in some way, however you define deliver, to, it's put a lot more pressure on Julia and the board to raise money, and in the back of my mind, I know that you know, I, I have to make decisions in, to some extent thinking about having something in the season that's going to actually sell tickets as opposed to just maybe be artistically <laughs> rewarding and make me happy and you know, the subscribers the happy. Is that what seems to be not the unspoken thing is, you know, I mean, whoever thought that Assassins could run as long as mm. Cabaret has forgotten what the story of Assassins is. <laughs> I mean, there is some relationship to content in life, though increasingly less and less, as we know from two days ago. Um, but, uh, Even though a musical about Nazi Germany would not be on anybody's short list about what's going to run for six I'm years either. Love yeah, story. Absolutely. It's a love, it know. was a great success when it was first done. Yes. I mean, right. Great when I was at Clarets Horizons, we did the original production of Assassins, and if you think your production didn't run long, <laughs> <laughs> you should have seen what our production did, and, and it ran a few weeks. Um, but, you know, I think you ran it honorably and well. It was a brilliant production. Too. Beautiful production. But it's about people who kill presidents, and it was done in an election year. I mean, <laughs> for God's sake. It's inspirational. <laughs> You know, I mean, I think, I, I, I just think there is something about content. It doesn't matter 
<laughs> That'll be strong, I, I think. Uh, <laughs> the, ru the rumor. I mean, it, 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 there are certain things that no matter how well reviewed they are or how much an mm -hmm. audience, especially a subscriber audience, well, an informed audience uh, is, well, no, we had the same sort of situation, and, and uh, we, we did a, a, a extremely well-received uh, production of Tom Stoppard's *The Invention of Love* uh, in a Broadway house. And we don't really go to Broadway much, uh, West 40s Broadway, except if the Beaumont is occupied, or if there is a play in which we need a proscenium. Because, God, I wish we had one. We don't have a proscenium, and there are some plays that simply should not be done on thrust theaters of which the invention of love was one and the Beaumont was occupied. Well, it was extremely well received. Two of the leading actors won Tony Awards and I don't even remember what, it was a success. But it was a limited success because it was a, it was perceived as an esoteric and rather difficult piece. And the problem we had, which probably was different from Assassins, was that in fact, the audience who came found it extremely accessible, most of them, and they could connect to it. It was, that word we haven't mentioned so far, the critics, so <laughs> eager to show off their own wisdom and education that they all wrote about it and made it sound like it was like a trip to hell, <laughs> uh, except good, because it was about poetry and the entire world or something. And in fact, it was a very accessible play, done extremely romantically and emotionally and accessibly. But because it was perceived as being a specialized kind of a, an olive as opposed to some spaghetti, it, it, it only lasted its few months. And we had to close it for the same reason. We had no advance going into the summer, I remember, having had such a success with it. And there are certain plays or musicals that are wonderful that have limited lives. God did not come down from heaven and tell us that everything that was well-received should run forever, because it isn't like that. Nor did it in, in an earlier age right. on Broadway. If we right. think back to the sort of golden age of commercial you know, play producing, the, the, the length of runs, as we were running Allergist and, and Proof, and as, as I got more interested in the history of the Biltmore, I began to look at the length of these runs. And as you name the great American canon of Barrymore. the 20s and the 40s and the 50s, these plays had relatively modest runs then. It's, it's only Tale of the Obvious Wife was the second longest running thing to Streetcar Named Desire. <laughs> I mean, really, so, go so, figure. So it was only the long-running mega-musicals no, 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 of these no, last few decades that have changed the, the perception, yes. really, even of what success, what success means, exactly. along with, of course, the change in costs that pushed <laughs> for the commercial theater recoupment out, out to a farther point and made, therefore, running longer, you know, a, a more dire need than it had been before. I just want to, though, come back to the other half of what you were asking, and that is, I think it's notable, uh, it was sort of already there for, for Lincoln Center, perhaps, but all three of us kept our off-Broadway spaces, if you will, as well. And I think that's an important aspect of who we are. Um, now, they don't have to attract as wide an audience, so perhaps they're less single-ticket buyers there. But, but our audiences now have the opportunity, at least at MTC, to come to 150-seat, three-quarter round general admission space to a 300-seat uh, end stage, as well as the Biltmore. And it gives Lynn greater flexibility of trying to put a play where it feels right, not as a sense of one is better than the other, but rather matching the play to the venue, which I think has to be a part of any theater that's about development and institutional work. 
Well, and when, when Bernie was saying that you believed the allegiance of the artist was primarily to the play and not to the space, Lynn, you were shaking your head in a different direction. Mm -hmm. um, do you find that, that the artist who will, this is affecting your relationship with artists, where are the plays produced? I think, you know, once, uh, what, what's the expression, how are you going to keep them down on the farm once they've seen Paris? <laughs> There is a sense that they, Todd was talking about the accoutrements of Broadway, the Tony Awards, the kind of uh, attention that you get, makes a writer say, well, maybe this play shouldn't be off-Broadway, maybe it should be in the Broadway venue. And so I think there's definitely an appetite has been created now. Hopefully the writers and the, uh, the, all of the artists involved will rise to that occasion. But I, I think there's definitely, I don't think there's, I think if you give an artist a choice, do you want to do this piece in a broom closet or do you want to do it where a lot of people are going to come and see you and applaud you? <laughs> and I might choose the broom closet, <laughs> but most, most artists would choose the, very, the larger, glitzier venue. I, I, but I think there's a counter tendency as well and that there are those who feel that they are more protected, authors, sure directors, actors who feel more protected in the more limit in the off-Broadway facility and that if the, if the merit of the work warrants there will be a life beyond that. That's always a possibility. Sure. Whereas the, uh, the, the downside of all the glitter or all the exposure, all the benefits or all the Tony competition, if that's a Pressure. factor, which I always think it isn't, but that may be naive on my part, uh, it becomes a disadvantage. And there's one work that we're doing at the, you know, imminently that chose to be done in the small theater, uh, deliberately. It chose, the authors chose. Well, I was interested, I mean, the assumptions we make as consumers, I have to admit, I, I was surprised when I was looking for um, uh, The Foreigner recently in the ABCs that my assumption was Matthew Broderick, he wins the Tony for the producers, that's clearly going to be in the Broadway house. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised to find that it wasn't. Uh, I, and indeed, he was still in your off-Broadway sp uh, space doing a revival. Uh, I'm curious about internally, do we now internalize, though, the need to place celebrities in the Broadway space? I, I, does the ticket imperative drive you to different casting decisions when you're thinking about the Broadway house than when you're thinking about the off-Broadway, on top of the play itself? Yes. Okay, well. <laughs> <laughs> and, is, and how do you negotiate that with, with a writer? Is that an issue if the writer feels conflicted about the casting or not? Well, everybody has to agree about the casting, but I mean, I don't know, Todd has had more experience dealing with the uh, casting on the Broadway. I, well, I mean, I, I certainly feel more Leave pressure. More I feel more pressure than ever in terms of ticket sales uh, to have uh, stars. We, and, and I, I my, my experience may be different than other people on this panel. I, may, I sense that it is, but I, I can tell you just from roundabout experience that stars mean more now than they did 10 years ago. That, in other words, an equivalent show with equivalent reviews 10 years ago without a star would have sold more tickets than that equivalent show would now. I, I know because we've had enough years and experience with these type of shows to just see how important it's become. So the trick for us has always been not only to try to get the stars and get these people who have incredibly busy lives and lucrative careers to work for a thousand bucks a week, but also, perhaps more importantly, to try to get them to not only not compromise the artistic work, but to enhance the artistic work. I mean, nobody would argue with the fact that 
having a star who brings an incredible quote-unquote star performance, however you want to define that, to whatever the work is, is not a bad thing at all. The problem is, of course, you know, try, if you ever get to the point where you're taking a star uh, who is not as good as somebody else might be in the role because they're, and taking them because you think they'll sell tickets. And that, that is where, you know, that's, that's where disaster lies. And if there's any place that, you know, should try to maintain the integrity of the work that we're doing, in, a, in an increasingly commercial world, it's obviously the not-for-profit theater. I mean, if we're not going to try to do work that has a certain purity to it, obviously different risk levels at different sizes, but has a certain purity to it, then nobody else is. I mean, so that is my constant, my constant struggle, A, to try to get those names that I think will attract a certain number of subscribers, and B, to try to get people who I think not only will do that, but will bring incredible, incredible distinction to the roles that they're doing and the players that they're with, so that it's a win-win situation. And I don't know that we've ever, certainly we've made mistakes. There's no question like that. We've never, at least I don't think I've ever consciously made the mistake. I mean, I've never put somebody in a role where I thought, I've got to sell tickets, but I don't think they're going to be any good. They were pure mistakes. They were pure, honest, <laughs> pure, honest <laughs> mistakes. And, but I'll tell you, every year I feel more pressure. And so when we have, we have 12 Angry Men going right now at the theater that doesn't have big stars in it, Philip Bosco, very well-known, Boyd Gaines, fairly well-known. But and they the total up to being a big total, star. And the fact that that show is really doing well has been fantastic for me because I, it's so nice to have a show that actually sells single tickets in addition to making the subscribers happy where it's not driven by, you know, a huge celebrity and all those things. But I think every year I find it getting... And, I, and maybe it has something to do, I don't know what you think, but it may have to do with the fact that in the last 10 years more and more celebrities have been coming to commercial mm -hmm. Broadway productions right. for whatever the reason, mm -hmm. and maybe there's just more competition in that marketplace and people's expectations are greater. I mean, you look at around this season and you have Jessica Lange and Billy Crystal and Whoopi Goldberg. It's a pretty impressive group of people. And, you know, we have to now... We have to sell single tickets to balance our budget. We have to, and we have to sell a significant number of single tickets. And I feel that pressure. The thing I'd like to say about stars, though, is it's, it's always seemed like, oh, they have to put, you know, there's always stars in their shows. Well, people are very often stars because they're incredibly talented and, and wonderful actors. So it, it's not just put a star in to sell a ticket. They're very often the best choice, you know? I think the other thing the, to talk about is, is this switch from subscription in part to single ticket sales, which, which um, is a national trend, not just a local one and not just one here on Broadway. Certainly, um, MTC as roundabout is, it's, it's different with the membership base at Lincoln Center, but are, are committed and, and enormously grateful to a dedicated subscriber pool that, that makes our existence possible and makes our growth, frankly, over the last 30-plus years possible. Nonetheless, um, single-ticket buyers energize the audience. They, they come with a specific choice to a specific piece. And therefore, the mix of those two groups of people is, is, a, is a wonderful kind of uh, recipe for energy in the audience, I think. And, and they have different needs to the way we attract them. Um, and, and STARS certainly helps in uh, reaching that audience in that mix. In any way, does your, for, are you, does your Broadway context lead to those expectations that you, they will also see STARS in a different way in your not-for-profit houses, or are the audiences not now coming with that expectation? Too early for us to tell. Too soon to know. Ben, ben yeah. I just Arnie? have to tell you about a doctrine that was evolved at Lincoln Center Theater years ago before Andre was there, and it was called the Doctrine of Nepotism which is you don't hire somebody because they're your girlfriend, 
but you don't not hire somebody because you're, they're your girlfriend. And that became manifest in the uh, case of Madonna in a notable instance. <laughs> and there the doctrine was evolved that said you don't hire Madonna because she's Madonna, but you don't not hire Madonna because she's Madonna. I thought you were going to tell us Madonna was your girlfriend. This is going to be a great story. Oh, <laughs> boy, we're going to get you on the front page of the New York Times tomorrow. Yes, exactly. She should be so lucky. Um, <laughs> she is lucky. Well, I, I'm curious about. We've talked about your relationship a little bit with artists. I'm also curious about your relationship with your not-for-profit colleagues. That now that you work in this arena, how does that affect your relationship with other theaters, both? locally in New York, but also nationally. Have you sensed a difference in those relationships? I know, I know Barry, for example, you're, you, you've, you've co-produced with Broadway producers before. You currently have a show that you're co-producing with South Coast Repertory Theater. Mm -hmm. What's different about those collaborations when you're working with not-for-profit partners versus for-profit partners? Well, one of the differences is that um, in the case you mentioned, uh, South Coast, that's a theater that in this later generation has really made a huge commitment to commissioning writers' work and to developing work. Um, and we're blessed in this relationship with Brooklyn Boy to be able to work on the play together from the beginning and provide for, I think it was a five-week run in Cosa Mesa, California, before the work comes to New York. Um, so there's a kind of maybe perhaps all the way back to the days of plays being out of town before they were in town. Um, we, we've done similar kinds of uh, relationships in the past, even before we got to Broadway with the Goodman, with the Taper in LA. And, and so those relationships allow, I think, for the work's evolution prior. While occasionally we've been involved with a commercial producer at the beginning, for the most part, those relationships have been about helping bring extra assets to the transfer of the work into an open-ended environment, and perhaps some of their great expertise in marketing longer runs than we've had before. So they're really on the front end and the back end, I think, different. You know, the, uh, uh, George Wolf in another conversation had said that, that he saw the essential difference as being between process and product in terms of the not-for-profit priority versus the for-profit priority. I'm wondering, Andre, certainly you've had experience in both for a long time. Does that resonate with you or not necessarily, you, especially given what you said earlier about play development? Well, it, it sounds good, but uh, <laughs> I don't, you see, I, I, I guess to go back to something I blabbered out, blabbered out half an hour ago or whatever, I, in my opinion, process without product is just a ludicrous waste of time. I believe the nonprofit theater is about process and product, one leading to the other, usually, though not always. And the commercial theater is about product only. I, I think there are some commercial producers who do engage in a sort of nurturing process and do workshops and readings and all of that. I mean, they, it's so interesting. We now, I mean, everything is kind of full circle after all these years. We, in a way, we are now modeling parts of our lives on the commercial theater. And in the past 10 or 15 years, they seem to be increasingly modeling some of their lives on us. All of this, just to remind all of us oldies, you know, is, is kind of is a recent development. And I remember, you know, we all remember the words of the great Gerald Schoenfeld, who was the chairman of the Schubert organization, uh, 
and he would always say it under so many contexts, I never quite know what he means, but he would always say, there's no profit <laughs> like, like non-profit. Oh, God, yeah. And occasionally that means you guys make all the money, and occasionally that means artistic uh, indulgence. Of course, he forgets that the Schubert Organization is, in fact, a non-profit organization. So when he says there's no profit like non-profit, he, in fact, includes himself in that. But I think the thing that's so interesting is that the worlds have, and I think we're coming out from under, a sort of uneasiness of, well, there's the profit world and the nonprofit, and, and the nonprofits shouldn't get too involved, because I remember all of that. There was a kind of suspicion on the part of Broadway commercial producers that we were, I don't know, we shouldn't talk about stay down on the farm when you've seen Paris. I remember years ago at Playwrights Horizons, we gave our first fancy fundraiser, and the then head of TDF, and we had hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> which, of course, had been made by volunteers, but nonetheless, <laughs> they were hors d'oeuvres, and we served, God help us, white wine that actually <laughs> came in real glasses. And the head of TDF said to me and to Bob Moss, he said, now, this is nice, but don't get too big for your boots. And I remember thinking, Buster, we're going to get bigger than your boots have ever been, <laughs> because it's that kind of patronizing that used to go on. Let us remember. Right. That's all gone now, thank God, and I think there is a healthy interchange. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that, I mean, even TCG, I used to be on the board of TCG before Ben. You want to come back? No. <laughs> I was a I, terrible I board member. Too. I never ever opened my mouth <laughs> once, but you were not the head of it then. And when I was on it, which was in the 80s, there was this absolute distrust and suspicion about New York City and its theaters. And I think the only reason I was on the board was because the then-retiring head wanted his farewell party in the Beaumont, which was the biggest theater in New York then, <laughs> because I contributed nothing. I was hopeless. But there was a great suspicion of New York theaters as being not artistic or vulgarians or interested in show business. And I think all of that is gone now simply because we have all survived. What Bernie says is true. Somehow, God only knows. And the trick of it is to not try to, in a way, what we've all said for the past two hours, we're trying to eat our cake and have it too, in a way, in a, in a respectable way. And I think we sort of, sort of are, but we have to be very careful that we're not kidding everyone, including ourselves, about what we're doing. I went a few years ago to a very small theater that's been around forever uh, to see a play, and the artistic director in his blue jeans and beret came out and said to the audience, now we're just working here, we're a little non-profit theater, we're all for the development of the writer, please know we're just trying it out tonight. Well, in the audience was the entire press corps of the New York theater, Frank Rich, Clive Barnes, Howard Kissel, John Simon, I thought, what are you doing? You've got to be nuts. You were trying your little play out in your little black box in front of the major critics at New York. You are not telling the truth. Or if you are telling the truth, then you really are a moron. Uh, <laughs> and I ne but I never forgot that because I thought, I know what that artistic director was trying to do because I've had that in myself. I want to be treated and respected as a nurturer and a nonprofit person and all that. But I'm doing a play on Broadway that's eligible for Tony Awards, and we want to sell tickets, too. 
The other myth I want to dispel before, and I don't want to monopolize or say anything more after this, is that there used to be this myth that's gone now, thank God, that money was somehow bad for you, that somehow these nonprofit theaters were fine as long as they were small and... Poverty no struck. Poverty struck. <laughs> and the, it was the chorus line model that we all remember. We all wanted, and I remember this so vividly in the 70s, if we could just get our own chorus line. <laughs> Not because we wanted to be rich, but we wanted to have money to do better work, which is what happened at the public theater. They grew, they expanded, they nurtured, they developed, they did all that stuff partly because of a chorus line. We wanted that freedom too. And now, you know, a little money helps you. You can pay people better, you can live in better surroundings, you can renovate dressing rooms, you can build bigger ladies' rooms, which is the major difference between these Broadway theaters and, and your guys' stuff. You have good bathrooms, and what's wrong with that? But Andre, you know, there is a distinction for people who, who, are, wa who are watching this on television who don't understand that when you say that a, Jerry Schoenfeld's comment that there's no profit like nonprofit, that when a nonprofit company, whether it's from Cabaret, whether it's from Proof, whether it's from Contact, makes money, that money gets poured back into the institution to produce more work. So when you talk about getting rich, it's an institution that is enriched so that it can produce more work. And I think people don't quite understand that distinction. It's not the same as Cameron McIntosh producing uh, Phantom of the Opera. That's not, that maybe monies are being used for something else, but all of our institutions, if we are enriched and God willing, all of us will have seasons this year that allow for that. That money gets poured into dozens and dozens of more shows. And I think a lot of people don't understand that distinction. Well, and I think and you're also our, And also yep. our facilities. I mean, we would not have been able to buy Studio 54 or probably even go into the American <coughs> Airlines Theater and do the work that was necessary there without ha having built up a healthy financial picture for a company over right. the years. And I think the, I other, the thing that we all know is that these successful things that make money often, more often than not, turn out to be utterly out of the blue and unexpected. Mm -hmm. The That's things right. in the back of your mind that Always. you won't admit to plotting, Always. that oh, this is going to inevitably fail. And the thing that just sort of hits you and therefore hits the audiences and often the critics can be just sort of out of, out of air, unexpected. And wonderfully so. I wanted to come back to an earlier piece that Andre was talking about that's related to this, and, and, and that is that, you know, probably for good reason we have, we have the nonprofit in common. We've been trying to draw a bright line through this conversation. And what is true is that, first of all, there isn't one commercial theater either. There's now a corporate model, there are partnerships, there are consortia, there are partnerships between nonprofits and, and for profits that, that exist. Um, many of the people in the commercial theater began their careers now that there is a nonprofit that's been around for 30 or 40 years in our world, um, working in different kinds of ways. So, uh, back in 1974, I guess, there was something called the First American Congress of Theater, in which the nonprofit and commercial theater came together. And, and basically, 
could only agree on one thing, that they needed to meet regularly, and then didn't meet again for 25 years. Uh, <laughs> no, we but next year, didn't we? The, the second Congress, which I actually spent some real time on the planning committee of, as, as you did, um, called Act Two, came together in Cambridge 25 years later, and we found that this kind of unease was really gone, that, that these were methodologies for moving work forward, and that in fact, uh, a healthy sort of polyglot ecology was the best thing for the theater. We, we're here to do what we do. Multi the corporate presence of places like Disney has done a phenomenal job at bringing a different kind of presence to the street, helping clean up Times Square, um, so that the, the coalition of all of these groups together has in fact been good. And when the Broadway theater is healthy and the, and the press writes about a rich season, it attracts larger audiences. And when they write about it as if the theater was dying for the 50th time, it, it tends to discourage that same thing and it keeps down the, the, the attendance. So, so th there's no question that working together has been a plus, not a minus. Well, even though, I mean, to, to return to the, the earlier point, Andre, you were raising about uh, uh, myths we hold precious about ourselves or sort of holier-than-thou attitudes. Clearly, one of the things we saw, actually, Todd, when, when you all moved into the American Airlines Theater and named it the American Airlines Theater, there was a, a reaction from not only some of your own colleagues, but certainly from the press. And without getting into the myriad issues about why we're dissatisfied with the press, I'm curious about that shift in your relationships that you all experienced, and indeed whether now for all of you, this issue of working in the for-profit as well as the not-for-profit ball fields subjects you to a different kind of scrutiny from the press or a different kind of level of expectation. Um, I I, well, I think, you're, I think you're probably rightfully judged, perhaps, at a different standard on Broadway than you are off-Broadway in the sense that they compare you and treat you the same way they would treat a commercial production that may have been, you know, had $15 million spent on it and 19 weeks of rehearsal and all that. I always feel, and maybe, you know, I may be wrong about this. I, 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 this is just purely subjective and anecdotal, um, but I don't particularly feel my experience in other cities, both that I've worked at and that I've been at, is that there's a certain um, embracing of the institutional theaters by the local press. I'm not saying that they give a show a good review if they don't like the show. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about in a more general sense, supporting and recognizing the value of the institutional theaters. Um, I'm not sure I particularly feel that in New York. I, 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 don't, I don't feel hostility, but I don't feel any <laughs> sense of you know, we have to make Manhattan Theatre Club and Roundabout and Lincoln Center and Playwrights Arises and New York Theatre Theater. We have to make those institutions succeed in the long run, even though we may not like individual plays because they're very important to the infrastructure of our city, artistically, culturally. I don't really feel that for the most part. I feel it's a pretty sort of cynical, adversarial relationship. And as I said, that may be totally subjective. I would, totally, subjective. I would yeah. totally agree with you. I totally <laughs> I, this is a cool town. This is not a sentimental town. That's why they say if you make it here, if you can make it here, you make it anywhere. It's not like a small town where they embrace their little theaters. But there's a difference between embracing and valuing institutions. I'm not saying that we should be dealt with as if them. we're Boston and we're the Boston Red Sox, but we are institutions. If you press them, they'll tell you that we mean a great deal to them. I really believe this. In print? But, no, yes. no. <laughs> In print, I'll just to give, write the it. <laughs> give the news. But I don't feel that. I really don't. I think it's, that's it's like New, our, but it's that's New like York. saying we really like your play, we're just not going to produce it. Well, we do say that from time <laughs> to time, don't we? But no, I, I do think that. I think that it's a New York, it's New York attitude. 
And how can you be I a New Yorker and not, not embrace New York attitude? Mm. It's cool. It's a cool way to be. You don't, you don't pet them. I, I think it would be zoo. great if they didn't like a show that they could say, you know, talk about that one show rather than going back and reviewing the track record of the last two years, good or bad, you know, and, and there, there seems to be, they, they continually want to review the entire institution in a, a press, in, a, you know, the critical review of a show. Um, I mean, sometimes good, too, but very often not good, you know? Um. You know, I'm curious as we come into the home stretch uh, uh, on this, uh, about an issue that we've only lightly touched on, but it seems increasingly imperative. You know, one of the things we all know in the business is the extraordinary financial pressures we all face as not-for-profit theaters. Um, and just to put this in a concrete context, what we're finding nationally is that the number of corporations funding theater has fallen 48% in three years. Foundation giving is down. Individual Wait, say that number again? 48%. The number of corporations funding theaters has fallen 48% in three it, years. It, oh, wow. In three years. <gasps> that foundation giving has stagnated or falling. Government giving is largely down, especially when adjusted for inflation. Individual giving is perilous, et cetera. I'm curious about how this move into Broadway is affecting your relationship with your boards. It's easy for your board to say, if we win five Tony Awards, we have a successful season. If we don't get any Tony nominations, the, board must have, the season must have been bad. How do you now, in your current context, define success for your organizations? And how do you help your board understand that larger vision? I think while the statistics that you just um, cited are daunting, um, it, it's a good opportunity to start and just you know, make a commercial for the extraordinary people that these boards of directors are in their commitment to the institution, in their belief in the work, in their uh, willingness to support it, not just financially, but in the face of difficult reviews from time to time, uh, uh, taking big risks. Uh, MTC's move to the Biltmore had to break ground uh, three months after 9-11. And uh, there's never been a more moving statement than the board's reaffirmation of what was the largest undertaking we could have possibly faced in that difficult, difficult economic climate. So I think, first and foremost, they are to be applauded and applauded and applauded. Secondly, though, I would say that equally true, out of whether you call them members or subscribers, the individual donor bases are the rank-and-file theatergoers who understand the need to support these companies beyond buying tickets. And overwhelmingly, as we know, um, the giving in America comes 80% from individuals. I'm talking about to religious causes, to social services and whatnot. That wasn't always true in the theater. The theater was, you know, uh, much later turned uh, not-for-profit, and so it took a while maybe to catch up. But, but these donors are really pretty incredible, and even in the face of the daunting challenge, I mean, our budget went up dramatically when we began producing on Broadway, they have been great, great supporters of the art and the vision of the institution. 
And I would, I would add also one other constituency, which I think in New York we are particularly lucky to have, and primarily because we are in New York and our businesses are, is the city of New York. The city of New York has been extraordinary, and it is because they understand that the New York theater, both the for-profit and the non-profit, are significant to the economic life, the quality of life in this city. It is the arts that draw people here. It is the reason people visit here. It's the reason, and theater in particular, is why tourists come, and it's why businesses want to be here. And so the city has really stepped up, particularly in the last probably six to eight years, as contributions have started to fail, um, probably more in the corporate sector. At least that's what we've experienced. American Airlines aside, I wish it, it had um, inspired more corporations to take a brave step as they have in deciding to support the nonprofit theater. But the city of New York, the mayor, the city council has truly, I feel like I'm doing a commercial for them, but there is so much of who Roundabout is that would not have been possible had they not stepped up. I do think, speaking about our board, the relationship has shifted significantly over the last three to four years, where it was an incredibly supportive board, very enthusiastic about the organization, very supportive, but now they are having to step up to such an extraordinary level to help balance our budget, to help us bring in the contributed revenues that we need, not so much because giving has dropped, but because the expenses right. have, right. have skyrocketed. Thank you for that word. Um, so dramatically over the past three to four years as a result of both running three theaters, which we do, having to renovate, having to maintain, which are all choices we made and the board made with us, um, but in the face of 9-11 of and a recession. So they've had to step up and um, I can't believe they, I, I shouldn't say that, no, I'm shocked at how high they have stepped in the past couple of years and how we'll have to continue to in the next three to five years. Andre at Lincoln Center, how would your board say they understand success for your theater? Well, God only knows. I, I don't know the answer to that. I think it would vary from, well, Bernie probably knows, I think it varies from board member to board member. Inevitably, in boards of directors, there are groups, the old, old timers on the board, at least on our board, tend to have a greater knowledge of what it is the institution is about than the, the newcomers. I think the personality of board members has changed or is changing from a sort of well-informed, cultured, civilized member of a certain group of people who gave to cultural institutions because they believed in the, that they were for the greater good of mankind to, you know, a more people with a great deal of money, some of it recently made, who want to unload it and like the theater but don't know that much about it. Uh, so I think that our board, certainly, I can only speak to ours, is changing. The old guard, many of them have become trustee emerit emeriti, emeritus or have died and there's younger people and, and it's just like audiences, it's like everything in life. Uh, I think there are board members who think what you say, awards or whatever, is good. I mean, there was a board member who left the board uh, who, who was, didn't like what we were doing. And uh, I remember the then chairman of the board told me she had gone to his office. And he had two manila folders on his desk. One was thin and one was fat. The fat one had all the bad New York Times reviews we had gotten. And the thin one had all the good New York Times reviews we had gotten. Well, you can imagine his point. 
he believed that the fat one should have the good ones, and if he was going to be on the board of a theater, he wanted to be on the board of a theater with a fat bunch of good reviews, not a thin one. The chairman, who was very knowledgeable about the theater and about why there are bad reviews and good reviews, clued him in, and his, the result was that he, he left the board, I, not after that conversation, but a few months later. Uh, I think that part of any board informing has got to come from the leaders of the organization, obviously. I mean, as my daughter says, duh. Uh, <laughs> if Bernie and I and all of you do not inform in an entertaining and intelligent and real, as opposed to phony baloney, oh, it's all great, great, great. If you, are, if you behave honestly with people and your motives are real and your passions are great and you're smart, I think that they will understand your version of success. I know for me as an artistic director, and it's taken me years and years and years to come to this, I now have tuned out all other versions of what success should be for a work or for a company, except for what I feel. And that is not the height of egocentricity or arrogance, I, I hope. It's the only way I can keep myself from going mad. Because everybody has an opinion, and you hear it from everyone. And what I try to do now, as opposed to rely on the critics, though they're important, the audiences, though they're important, the board, though they're important, the donors, my friends, is how do I feel the process and the product, to use the two words that, that you had mentioned earlier, worked. And if I can sleep at night calmly and think, okay, everything else doesn't matter to me, but I'm, my hard, I'm hard on myself, and I imagine all of us are, the rest is part of what we have to live with, but everybody has an opinion about a play and what you should have done or what you shouldn't have done, and you just can't. You go mad. Well, the well, rest, I, and I hate to be the one to do this, but on the keynote of passion, intelligence, humanity and internal barometers and in terms of tuning out other things I've been told it's time to tune us out and that we're out of time in closing we'd like to say a word of thanks that the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars are brought to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York please join me in thanking my seven inspirational and brilliant colleagues on the panel tonight and for the work they do at their theaters thank you